But Job said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I want to speak from the topic this morning, sins of the heart. Sins of the heart. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job. It's the story of a righteous man. Job had money and fortune. He had 10 well-behaved children. All of his household affairs were in order. So according to the cultural dictates of the ancient world, Job was a man of great honor. This is why, according to the story, God puts Job through a test, a test initiated by Satan. Satan says to God, the only reason Job honors you is because you've blessed him. He's got a nice house. His livestock is lucrative. He and all of his children are happy and healthy. No wonder he tells people about how you've blessed him and how you've brought him. But I tell you what, God, let me at his cash and at his cattle. Let me at his happy life and his good health. And I bet you that Job will curse your very name. And God concedes and the devil gets busy. Enemies raid Job's home and his livestock. A fire burns up his property. A tornado kills all of his children. And in a sick and twisted encore, Satan strikes Job with a debilitating disease. Yet the Bible says that Job never once sinned with his lips. Job's suffering sets the stage for the primary point of the poem. For the primary point of the poem is not simply to test Job's mettle. The overarching aim is to debate the source and nature of suffering. For the book of Job interrogates the question of theodicy, a term that literally means God's justice. Theodicy. Some of you may know, not know this theological term, but I bet you you've wrestled with the questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is supposed to be good and God has so much power, then why does it seem like evil always triumphs? Wait, I learned in Sunday school. I learned in Sunday school that God was good and God was good all the time. But every time I turn around, it seems that the people who walk right, talk right, live right, are the ones who draw in the short end of the stick in life. But the folk who are most vicious and vile, 
The people who are most mean-spirited and conniving, the people who lie and are just low down, those are the ones who always seem to end up on top. God, I need some answers. Has anybody here ever asked these questions? Ah, if you have, then you're not alone. Come here, Jeremiah. Ah, the prophet Jeremiah asked the question this way. He said, Lord, why do the ways of the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked live at ease? You're always on their lips, God, but you're far from their hearts. I've tried to hold on to your promises. I've condemned those who have lived unjustly. But the more I protest, the more they seem to thrive. Lord, I need some answers. Come here, Elijah. Oh, the prophet Elijah was on the run from a corrupt king and queen. And Elijah said to God, he put it this way, God, you might as well take my life now. I've had enough. I've preached what you've told me to preach. I've stood for the cause of righteousness. I've faced down fear. I've picketed and protested those who privilege might overwrite. I've stood up to those who place power over principle. Yet now they're trying to destroy my life. So God, why don't you go ahead and kill me? Because I don't want to give the wicked that kind of satisfaction. But I can imagine many of you don't need Jeremiah. You don't need Elijah. I can imagine some of you have your own testimony. For some of you, it's deeply personal. You've been asking the question, Lord, why me? I've played by the rules. I know I haven't been perfect, oh God, uh, but I wouldn't wish this sort of pain or this sort of heartbreak on my worst enemy. If this is where walking with you gets me, God, then guess what? I'd rather walk all by myself. For some of you, might even be more sociological and anthropological. The history of humanity seems to be one of unchecked power and unbridled conquest. It seems that in this world, in this life, there's only two types of people. They're the winners and they're the losers. There's the conquerors and there's the conquered. So tell me, God, why am I supposed to heed all this language of justice, righteousness, mercy, and love? I would rather live as an unjust rich man than die as a righteous fool. Theodicy. And the book of Job speaks to these questions. The poem addresses these concerns. This happens mostly through these three men in the text, known as the comforters, three friends of Job who show up on the scene. They show up to quote unquote comfort Job and they all have the same similar response. Job, you must have done something wrong. You know what they say, Job, what goes around comes around. For every action, there's a reaction. But Job, the good news is, if you repent, God will forgive you. And the point of the story is that ancient writers wanted to call bull on this type of theory. 
They wanted to call out this type of thinking. There are some things in life the message is trying to send us. There's some things in life that we'll never be able to explain. Some tragedies are inconceivable and some causes are inexplicable. And as long as human beings have this thing called freedom, we must all accept the fact as painful as it might be, that in order to know joy, we'll always be vulnerable to pain. To experience beauty, we must sometimes recognize terror. To know love is to know heartbreak. And to soar on the wings of intimacy is to ultimately land in a place called loss. To ask the question, why me when sadness and suffering knocks at our door requires that we ask the same question when our days are sunny and bright. Why me? This is in part the moral lesson of the book of Job. But forgive me, my friends, if I begin to sound now like a heretic. But if I believe, I really believe that if we end here, the book of Job still leaves a lot to be desired. Maybe the moral lesson of random chance would be okay if all society were equal. Perhaps that response would be sufficient if all were provided the same opportunities, if all had equal access, if all lives mattered the same. Maybe that kind of theory would be acceptable. Then we could all write off joy and pain, success and suffering as a result of life's arbitrary roulette wheel. We know, however, some of us know painfully that the roulette wheel of life's privileges some more than it does others. Some lose more consistently in life because they're playing against a loaded deck. This is the dimension of suffering. This is the dimension or aspect of evil which the book of Job seems to remain quiet. We need not look any further than the most overlooked character in the story. I'm talking about Job's wife. The Bible says that Job lost all of his children. Well, let me ask you, who carried and breastfed those babies? The Bible says that Job lost all of his livestock in his land. Well, what was a woman without resources expected to do in the ancient world? The Bible says that Job was struck with a deadly disease. Well, let me ask you a question, particularly for those of you who have ever been in love. What is worse, you're having a disease, or are you watching the person who you love suffer before your eyes? Seems that the writers of this story gave no thought to her feelings, no attention to her trauma, no compassion for her pain, no tissue for her tears, no words of hope for her heartbreak. They invested no energy into all at all into hearing 
about her experience. When God and Satan make a wager, there's no mention of how it's going to impact her. When the three friends show up, they console and comfort Job. They don't even look at her way. Those who conveyed this piece of wisdom literature gave no thought to how calamity would impact a female character in an androcentric male-dominated world. The only reason we know that the woman exists is because storytellers included her as a foil character. By telling Job to curse God and die. She sets the scene for Job's forceful rebuttal of faith. You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive the good from God and not receive the bad? Maybe Job didn't sin with his lips. Job said the right things. He professed his faith in God. He showed up his friends in their argument. But what if we read this story through his wife's eyes? What if we read this story through her experiences? She may say that Job didn't sin with his lips, but he sinned with his heart. Because at the moment when the most vulnerable person in that household needed to be heard, the moment that his wife, the mother of his children, needed consolation, care, and compassion for her loss, Job was off debating the source of suffering with his friends. He ignored her pain. He abandoned her feelings. My friends, we would all do well to remember this in response to the presence of suffering and evil in our world today. The book of Job is right insofar as we cannot explain suffering, though explanations are not always as important as our actions. We may not be able to identify the source of evil, but such knowledge is not what God requires of us. For God expects us to do justice, to love mercy. God asks us to defend the weak and comfort those who mourn. God wants us to aid the afflicted and privilege those with least power. And when we do this for one another, we will come to understand the importance of what it means to be a part of a community of faith. We're called to be a community of comfort. We are called to be a community of care. We are called to be a community of compassion. It's what our poet in residence, Dory Hale, referred to this morning as the relationship between connection and consolation. Citing James Baldwin this morning, she reminded us of this enduring truth. Our pain is trivial lest we use it to connect with other people's pain. And insofar as we can do this with our pain, then we might be released from it. For there's consolation in human connection, not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our presence. There's a story in the Buddhist tradition 
that very well underscores this point. It involves a woman who lost her young son. In her grief and her disbelief, she refused to bury him. She believed that he was just sick and asleep. So the woman went around all of her neighbors begging for medicine and many thought that the woman had lost her mind, that she had gone mad. Finally, a neighbor told her to go and see the Buddha and he'll have the medicine for your child. When she went, the Buddha said to her, I can give you medicine for your healing. But I need you to borrow a handful of mustard seeds from one of your neighbors. But it can't be any neighbor. It must be from a neighbor who's never lost a child, who's never lost a spouse, who's never lost a parent, who's never lost a friend. With energy and enthusiasm, she ran to her neighbors and house after house, someone handed her mustard seeds. Yet when she inquired about death in their family, house after house, she heard an account. She heard about a beautiful child that died of disease. She heard about a beloved spouse that died suddenly. She heard about a dear parent who's here no longer, house after house. But in the process, she also saw something else. She saw the beauty of strength and resiliency. She also witnessed people that lived on with both heartbreak and fond memories. People who lived on to experience love and renewed life beyond their pain. House after house, she came to realize that she was not alone. Nor would she have to live on alone. Thus, without saying a word, this woman took her son and went back and placed him in the feet of Buddha to be buried. In her grief, she experienced the miracle and the power of empathy. In her grief, she experienced consolation through connection. That's the point that I want you to leave here remembering this morning, my friends. Our faith is measured not only by what we say about God with our lips, our faith is measured by what we say to and how we treat one another. For hands that serve, heal, and hug are more potent than lips that merely pray and profess. Let the church say, amen.